Today, I'm joined by Sam Copeland in the Reading Corner. Now, Sam is a writer and a literary agent, and I believe he was formerly a bookseller. So he really knows a lot about this business. His debut children's book, Charlie Changes into a Chicken, was published in 2019, and it was a huge success and followed by two further books in the series. Uma and the Answer was published in 2021. And Sam's latest book, Greta and the Ghost Hunters, featuring a cast of woebegones, continues in the hilarious vein that we've become accustomed to in Sam's writing. I'd like to welcome Sam, but also invite him to give us a flavour of this book by reading the prologue to get us going. Good morning. We'd love to hear you read from your book, Sam. Okay, this is the, this is actually the first time I've, I've read the prologue, so um, you, you just have to bear with me if it's a little rusty. Okay, here we go. Greta Wobegon did not believe in ghosts because she was a sensible young girl and sensible young girls tend not to believe in ghosts. That was until the day she was knocked over by a car and died when everything changed. But do not be too alarmed. Greta Wobegon did not die for long. You see, the thing about Greta is that she is surprisingly indestructible and a Volkswagen Passat proved to be no match for her. But we shall not be starting our story at the scene of an automobile accident. That would be far too dramatic. And this is not that type of book. This is a very serious novel full of important themes and valuable moral lessons and not one of easy thrills and cheap laughs. Instead, we shall begin by introducing the characters and build up to the little car accident, as it became known in the woebegone household. So who belongs to this woebegone household? Excellent question, assiduous reader. You've already met Greta Wobegon. She is 10 years old, small and unimportant looking. Beyond that, I'm not sure what to say about her. You children all look the same to me. She is, though, the main character of this book, unfortunately. And why, unfortunately? Because Greta Wobegon is rather dull. No, I'm not, Greta might argue if it's her turn to talk, which it isn't. And actually rather interesting. I have brown hair. I love dogs and football. My favourite subject is... Stop interrupting, Greta. Wait your turn. Greta lives in Wobegon Hall, a grand name for not such a grand house. The name was given to it by Greta's great-great-great-great-grandfather, a man high of aspiration and low of wealth. Wobegon Hall is a tall tombstone of a building, a great weathered slab of grey stone peppered with cobweb windows. It has four bedrooms and Greta's bedroom looks out over the small back garden. The graveyard beyond where many of the Wobegon family are buried and onto the factories in the distance. Greta's brother, even more small and insignificant than his sister, has the bedroom next to hers. He is three years old. I cannot at this moment recall his name. If it were his turn to speak, he would probably say something about lorries or some such. I, I, I don't really know. I, I try not to listen to him. Greta is fortunate enough to still have both her parents. Her father, William Wobegon, uses a wheelchair, smokes a pipe, has a large beard and moustache, and is always working on his latest collection of poetry. Her mother, Prosecca, also smokes a pipe, but has neither beard nor moustache. 
She does have dyed purple hair, however, and loves yoga, crystals and chanting. And whenever Prosecco chants, William closes his eyes and furrows his brows, if in great pain. That leaves Mildred Wobegon, or Grandma Wobegon, as she is more commonly known, both ancient family matriarch and Greta's best friend. Grandma Wobegon lives in the attic because that is where old women live in stories, even though it is extremely impractical and dangerous to give them rooms at the top of so many rickety stairs. She has a world record-sized marble collection and many, many years ago was a racing driver, and a very good one too. She was all set to race in the World Championship for an accident, destroyed a car and left her with a broken arm. And her husband, George Wobegon, made her stop, which was something that husbands could do to their wives in those days. Grandma Wobegon's bedroom is dotted with black and white photographs of her standing next to her racing car, shaking bottles of champagne, laurel wreaths around her neck and several old trophies that gather dust on her shelf. Grandma Wobegon is also convinced she can speak to ghosts. This is nonsense. The rest of the family all know there is nothing haunted about their house. The strange chills they all feel from time to time are just drafts. The weird clunks and creeps that rattle the house at night are just pipes. The creeping sense of dread that shivers up their necks whenever they go into the cellar is just rising damp. And the awful smells that occasionally fill the house are merely coming from the nappy of Greta's little brother, this is true. Those nappies are undeniably dreadful. Finally, there is a cowardly ginger cat called Pussylanimous. When not hiding under a bed or in wardrobes, it wheezes on the rugs and fails to catch the mouse that scuttle around the house whenever the lights go out, which they regularly do. And that is everybody you need to know about right now. Well, not quite everybody. So who am I? Ah, that is the question, but one that will be answered later. For now, I shall retreat into the background and allow this little story to unfold. We begin on a biting grey morning, deep in the cold heart of November, as Greta Wobegon makes her entrance. Oh, yeah. wonderful reading. It really sets up all the characters. The thing that strikes me straight away is this narrative voice that you have and it just reads aloud so well I mean we do have to wait until chapter 10 until we learn who the narrator is but I wanted to ask you Sam how you found that voice whether it comes fully formed in your head whether you have to speak like this character or does it just reveal itself on the page playing with that narratorial voice is one of the great joys of writing for me unfortunately the book I'm writing at the moment doesn't play with narratorial voice because I, I can't do that every single time but I thought with the Charlie series the narratorial voice was this, was this rather snarky author uh, who was essentially me and I was getting in arguments with uh, the publisher and I would get in arguments with children who would send in letters and I love doing that, but I, I couldn't repeat the same trick. So with this, um, the narratorial voice is one of the characters who is revealed in chapter 10, which is one of the fa my, my favourite chapters I've ever written. Actually, I love that chapter. Mm -hmm. um, but finding these voices, I think like anything, really, it's it's like you're, you're, you're digging in the ground and suddenly you find a little nugget of something interesting. So I'm always surprised by the words that appear on the page, to be honest. 
We're going to come back to more of the things that are raised in that prologue. Uh, but before we do that, there are a couple of problems in this story. One is about getting rid of ghosts and the other is about the family wanting there's a lot of getting rid of actually <laughs> because the other <laughs> is about the family wanting to put grandma in a home so that they can about saving them is what it's about oh i like that make it positive is it half full or half empty yeah. tell us about the problems the central problem i always have is, is plot actually i always struggle with plot but the plot of this is we discover our, our ghosts living in this house. And then at the same time, the parents think the grandmother is going crazy because she keeps talking about ghosts. And so they think, well, we're going to stick grandma in a home because they want space in the house. And the girl think, well, I need to save my grandmother from being chucked out of the house. So I'm going to prove to my parents that ghosts are real. So they'll believe grandmother. And she succeeds in doing that. But in, in succeeding doing that, the parents go, well, we can't have ghosts living in the house. We're going to get rid of the ghosts. And she's befriended these ghosts and she learns that getting rid of the ghosts will actually not send them on to heaven, but will actually cast them off, off to a place where uh, they just disappear. So she has to sit then after saving grandmother, she has to go about saving the ghosts from a fate worse than death. Mm. You said you have trouble finding plots. How do you sort of work it out then? I, I I do struggle to talk about this without being extremely pretentious. So <laughs> you'll have to forgive me. But what I do, my, my writing process is I find the characters first of all, and I have to feel affection towards those characters. And then essentially I sort of set them on their merry way and let them discover the, the the plot themselves so when I sit down often I've no idea what I'm going to write and, and I'm completely surprised in my writing two hours what what occurs because I, oh, I didn't see that coming at all. As you're talking about finding affection for your characters I would describe these characters in a literary sense as grotesque as in not that they're ugly but they're distorted for the purposes of humour and I thought of them as being a little bit like Dahl's characters, but that you are much kinder in your writing. And that sort of chimes with what you were saying about needing to feel affection for your characters. I mean, do you see them as grotesques? I had never thought of that word before, but I, I can certainly see why you would say that. I mean, firstly, these characters have to create humour. It's no good just sticking bland characters in... Uh, uh, making one fart and, you know, job done. You have to understand the dynamic between the characters um, and create humour from that. So often they will be slightly ridiculous characters. And uh, remind me to come back to ridiculous boys and ridiculous girls in a minute. But then I don't want to hang around characters that I don't, I have no affection for because I want people to like them. And, and I know I'm going to be pretentious again, but I really feel that by the end of the book, the characters are, are genuine friends of mine. And I'm often very, very sad to say goodbye to them. And I can't believe I'm, I'm saying that, but there you go. Even the grumpy ones. You even can tell the, you even like the grumpy ones, actually. I mean, the grumpy narrator in Greta becomes, I think, my favourite character in this book. And often it's the ridiculous characters who become my favourite characters. They always have to have a foil, though, somebody that's sensible, and that's Greta. 
in this. Correct, which is why I asked you to remind me about boys and girls and ridiculous characters, because I started realising that every time I wrote a book and actually every single um, example of sort of a ridiculous character is, I, I mean, there are probably exceptions to the rule, but I always made the ridiculous character a boy, always. And then I started thinking, well, actually, in, in, in fiction, in literature and films, the ridiculous character is so often a boy. They are um, the butt of the humour. So I decided in my new book, I'm like, right, I'm making the girl an idiot and I'm making the boy the sensible foil. So I'm having, having quite a bit of fun with that, actually, making mm. the girl an idiot for a change rather than the boy. We look forward to thinking more about that. We've touched a little bit on humour, but I want to say quite a bit more uh, about that. You do have that skill of making us genuinely laugh out loud. And I think that's a real gift. So my first question is, does that translate to life? Do you have a very jokey approach to life? And at the risk of sounding as though I'm putting you in the psychiatrist chair, do you think you find things funny just because they are inherently ridiculous? Or do you think it makes things less scary and less frightening? Excellent questions. I think humour is an essential part of my writing because I don't really understand um, communication without humour. I mean, obviously, there are times for serious conversations, but so often in life, we're all trying to make each other smile and laugh. And making people laugh is one of the great social bonding mechanisms I could never write a book without a humour because it's so ingrained in who I am and, and my character and so much of my character is is in these books. So when people ask me, you know, why, why do you write funny? Do you, are you going to write a serious book? And I think that question should be reversed. And, I, 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 you know, we, maybe we should ask serious authors, well, that, this isn't how people communicate. Why are you not writing funny books? Mm -hmm. and, I, and I do get really passionate about the clear disdain in publishing towards funny books. They are treated like the lesser form of literature, which to me is an absolute nonsense because you know, in my books, I insert fantastical worlds and fantastical characters. I insert really important themes and do you know what? I also have to insert jokes in there. Mm -hmm. And would that I could write a novel without having to create jokes, because creating jokes for me is the hardest part of it. You know, I have to really work on those jokes. I have to get the run up to them and then I have to nail the landing. And, and often I'm preparing these jokes for a long, long, long time. So, yes, they should absolutely be treated with an awful lot more respect than they are. And if you look at most prizes and many, you know, recommended books lists. They just don't exist. And I think we're doing a real disservice to children, actually. You know, we all sat here wondering why Jeff Kinney and David Walliams are, are, are so popular amongst children, because children love fun, entertaining books. Mm -hmm. And maybe because we're forcing upon them books which simply they're not that interested in. Uh, humour is often top 
choice uh, for, for many children. But even if we were to, this idea of disdain, it's so misplaced, not only because of the social bonding of humour. You don't generally laugh on your own. It's a social act, as you've said. Well, funnily <laughs> enough, writing the books is, is an exercise in making myself laugh. If I'm sat by myself and I laugh, then I, I think I've created a good joke there. But I was going, going on to say that actually intellectually, humour requires an awful lot to understand a joke. If you think about what you need to do to understand a joke yeah. or to understand a pun, we shouldn't disdain it because it is intellectually challenging. And I'm not saying that's why you write it, but the assumption that it's lesser or trivial is actually incorrect. Oh, it's, it's an absolute nonsense. I, I can see the joy which when, when, when children get, you know, uh, an interesting joke around uh, language. And you see that little light in their eyes. Yeah, you are creating these synaptical interchanges, which will last a lifetime. And some of them they're going to get immediately. And some of them perhaps will connect with them later in life. I mean, I'm thinking about your cat and the name of your cat. You know, I think on first reading, there aren't many children that are going to get the pun of Pussy Laminus. What a great name. Do you know what? You're the first person to have commented on that. Because the cat's a Brady cat. It's a scared cat. So, um, yeah. Yeah, perfectly named. And there was something else that I wanted to pick up um, from the prologue, just to show how, you know, subtle this is. Uh, It says, you can see the thing about Greta is that she's surprisingly indestructible and a Volkswagen Passat proved to be no match for her. Now, that Volkswagen Passat, naming that car is absolutely key, isn't it? Because if you just put, and a car proved to be no match for her, or even a Rolls Royce proved to be no match for her, somehow it wouldn't work in the same way. Okay, do you know what? I'm going to do the honest thing here. That joke, when I first wrote it, I had the car proved no match for her. And it was actually another author, my 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 soon-to-be co-author, Jenny Pearson, who, who, who brought that in. So it's funny that you noticed that, because I, I think she is genuinely a truly, truly funny writer, and, and she really, really understands humour, and that just goes to prove it. And I think it works on two levels, because children might not know what a Volkswagen Passat is, because it's an older car. Yeah. Those of us that are my age will remember an advert, if only everything in life was as reliable as a Volkswagen Passat. I fear fear I'm advertising for Passats (laughs) But there's something in the sound as well. Exactly. So it works on these different levels. Exactly. The rhythm of words is absolutely vital when you're writing funny books. It's choosing the right words and it's getting the rhythm of the words and it's the rhythm of the sentences as well. And sometimes on the bigger, grander jokes, it's the rhythm of... There was a... um, With Charlie um, turns into a T-Rex, I basically constructed the whole book around one gag. And I knew... Before I started writing the book, I wanted to get this 
this situation in and and I, I basically forced a whole book around that situation so and um, that's how important jokes are to me and when I'm being edited I oh my god I hate having my editor will tell you I hate having jokes cut out because I don't mind other words being cut out but jokes are like they're like these little nook, as I said, you little nuggets of uh, things I've discovered, and, I, and and you want me to chuck it away? No way. Uh, just one other thing about language. Not only is there funny language in here, but you are totally unpatronising to your reader. You even call them an assiduous reader, and then we've got all the words from you know the kind of Shakespearean period, rakish rampallions in here. It's just joyful. And it's really lovely that you don't patronise your reader. Uh, well, I mean, Assidious, even my editor, he, I remember he wrote a little note to it, basically saying, God, you you have no mercy on the child reader. And I really don't because children know when they're being patronised. And I don't, I don't want to patronise. I don't want to patronise children. I need to be able to sort of sit there and go, do you know what? I'm an adult. You're a child. Uh, but which doesn't matter because we're going to have fun together. But I'm not going to sort of sort of squat down and go, okay, children, I'm on your level now, um, because it's it's ridiculous. So no, I'm going to have no mercy with them with vocabulary, as long as the sweep of the book they understand. As long as every, I, I make every page as entertaining as I possibly can so the children don't get bored. But am I going to use slovenly language? No, I'm not. So, yeah, they, they can do what I did, get a dictionary out or um, or Google nowadays. Um, well, sometimes just read over it because they're going for the general cool. feel of the story. Of course. And then once they experience those words many times over, they get yeah. to know them from the context. So yeah. there's all sorts of ways that they come to. As long as, they, as long as they understand the flow and they might get a drift of the word. Mm. Um, but, you know, as kids, if there's a page of entertaining fun and there's one really difficult word, it doesn't matter, you just skip over it. They don't care. Mm. I mean, we've talked quite a bit about humour here, but I want to say that there are moments of shade. And, you know, it's it's shade and light. And there's some really moving moments in this story. The final chapter, I'm not going to say what happens in that, but I actually found that incredibly moving. Uh, there are also bits with grandma um, that are incredibly moving too. And perhaps more so because they're in the context of a funny story. I really hope so. I really hope so. Because, I mean, I, I, going back to... What I said about caring about the characters is I really do love them. But also one of the driving forces behind my writing is it's all cathartic, really. It's all, you know, I had a, a challenging childhood and I didn't really talk to anybody about any of my problems, really. And even through my teenage and early adult life, I was like, I'm absolutely fine. I'm absolutely fine. Didn't bother talking and it was only when a therapist said to me what would you say if you met 10 year old Sam now 
And that was a, uh, an extraordinary moment for me because it, it basically shook the whole foundations of my life. I was like, I know it's a cliche therapist question, but suddenly I realized, like, God, there was a there was a small, a, t- a tiny, vulnerable child going through this absolute maelstrom and not talking about it. So, so much of what I want to do with my I'm going to sound pretentious again, but so much <laughs> of what I want to do with my books is what I want to do to that 10 year old child, which is just give them a hug and tell them everything's going to be okay. Mm. And that's what I want to do with my books. I want to show that there are terrible things that happen in life, but with laughter and beauty and love, life is still absolutely an extraordinary experience. And uh, I can't believe I'm talking like this. What is going on? I'm so embarrassed. Anyway. (laughs) Please don't be embarrassed. I mean, yeah. I could see the connections between, you know, Charlie changes into a chicken and those stories about anxiety and here facing up to your fears, you know, that that's a, mm. a theme in this story too. Yeah. So I could see that connection running through uh, the books. And I have to say, it's just been an extraordinary pleasure talking to you today, Sam. And I'm looking forward to hearing the chuckles from children as they read Greta and the Ghost Hunters. Thank you so much. Thank you. It's been it's been really, really, really fun. So thank you. In the Reading Corner is presented by Nikki Gamble and produced by Alison Hughes. This episode is generously sponsored by Puffin Children's Books. If you have enjoyed this podcast, please leave us a review. If you would like to find out about other events and courses, visit justimagine.co.uk. Join us again in the Reading Corner on your favourite podcast platform.